The Guardian. Hello, this is the Business Podcast. I'm Adit Chakraborty. When it comes to manufacturing, politicians of all parties, Tory, Labour, Lib Dem, all agree. They want more of it. But how can Britain compete with China and its low wages? And how can governments help a sector which has been on a downward slope since the 1960s? Joining me to discuss this is Sir Alan Rudge, eminent industrialist and former Deputy Chief Executive of BT. Greg McClymont, Labour MP for Cumbernault. Heather Stewart, The Observer's Economics Editor. And Sukhdev Johal of the School of Management, Royal Holloway University of London and co-author of the new paper, Rebalancing the Economy or Buyer's Remorse. Now, after the banking crash, politicians joined business leaders in calling for a rebalancing of the economy. Now, this is my first major speech as Prime Minister, and I'm going to address the first priority of my government, which is transforming our economy. Today, Britain is, I think, at a turning point. The decisions we take now will live with us for decades to come. For many years, I believe we've been heading in the wrong direction. Our economy has become more and more unbalanced, with our fortunes hitched to a few industries in one corner of the country, while we let other sectors, like manufacturing, slide. It has become over-reliant on welfare, with mass worklessness accepted as a fact of life, and around 5 million people now on out-of-work benefits. Our economy has become, sadly, increasingly hostile to enterprise, with business investment in the past decade growing at around 1% each year, only a quarter of what it was a decade before. It has become far too dependent on the public sector, with over half of all the jobs created in the last 10 years associated in some way with public spending. David Cameron there, making clear that manufacturing was his number one priority in office. Greg, let's begin with you. I mean, you may be Labour, David Cameron may be Conservative, but you're not going to disagree with too much of that, are you? Well, we know that in politics and since the financial crisis, there has been much talk of rebalancing the economy. But I think if you listen to what David Cameron was saying there, it was a explicitly political message, which was trying to, you know, bind together things which may not essentially be related. So welfare being bound into the public sector. But that general sense of an economy that's out of whack, where manufacturing's in decline and there's not enough good jobs to go around, do you disagree with that? No, I don't disagree with that. But I think if you listen to David Cameron's speech, he was trying to do something more explicitly political that was bound things together which don't necessarily aren't related in the way he was suggesting. If we're talking specifically about manufacturing, then yes, of course, there is a, a great issue with manufacturing decline in this country. So, Dev, um, when we talk about manufacturing nowadays, what are we talking about? The kind of great big factories of yesteryear? Strangely... Um there are very few smokestacks left, um, but manufacturing. I mean, I, I just want to kind of correct one point in the in the earlier um, uh, question. Um, manufacturing is not in decline in terms of the amount of value added in real terms that's been generated since 1980, but it is no longer growing as part of the economy. Um, so we're looking at kind of um, uh, 
a plateau that's emerged. And in terms of manufacturing, it's considerably more different than it was in 1980. Um, in terms of kind of manufacturing, there aren't the, ma- the major kind of factories, the large employers. They've largely been kind of wiped out. Um, if you look at kind of manufacturing, most of the employment, 75% of it is in firm sizes of less than 14. Why does that matter? It matters because there's an export capability, there's skill sets, product positioning, brands, and where you are in the food chain in terms of the supplier sector, it all matters. Okay, so compare that lack of giant champions of industry that we've got here to what they've got in Germany. What's the difference between us and them? Well, let me look at it in terms of outcome rather than kind of firms. In Britain, in terms of the balanced trade deficit in manufacturing, it's just largely in two sectors transportation equipment, largely cars and machine tools. Um, It matters in terms of where you are in terms of brands because the supplier network in Germany is that the top end you can charge more for positioning the product up market. If you're in a supplier chain down at the bottom, you make the kind of the best nuts and bolts in the world, you're not going to be able to charge much of a premium price to BMW or Mercedes or anybody else. So what you're left is you're left doing small components, uh, which probably the Chinese can beat you and do do stuff cheaper. Um, really, you have been pushed into the price-sensitive end of the business. That's a lot of that kind of sector is slowly but surely being eroded and shifted elsewhere. But in terms of manufacturing, I, mean, I want to get past this kind of regionalization of also of manufacturing, because in terms of value, manufacturing is just as large in the southeast as it is in the West Midlands. And it's the, not the kind of thing that most people know about. And in terms of the growing sectors, Britain has a deficit in virtually every sector of manufacturing, apart from pharmaceuticals. And Perhaps later on you can pick up on kind of Pfizer. They're doing their bit to kind of carry on the trajectory of a downward slide. Um, The problem that we really got is um, it does matter because maybe not now, but in 10, 15, 50 years' time, what will Britain trade? Sir Alan, listening to that, that sounds like it's pretty terminal for manufacturing. Well, it's certainly very serious, uh, if not terminal. Um, we, uh, we have to not uh, accept that it's terminal or we might as well all go, uh, go, and go home and commit suicide or emigrate. If you, if you look at the manufacturing base at the moment, I think what we have to face up to is the realities. And the realities are that 80% at least of um, our larger companies in manufacture are foreign-owned, foreign-controlled. I'm not going to get into whether that's good or bad in this discussion. That would be a separate discussion. But the fact is that is the case. Their decisions, their strategic decisions, are different because they are foreign-controlled. For example, you're not going to find Honda wants to sell to China from the UK. What we have in the UK is an assembly plant that is uh, actually selling to the UK and Europe. And you'll find that quite often uh, after a period when uh, a UK company is acquired, it changes its character. It becomes part of a whole. It becomes primarily there to serve the local industry, the, the local market. And this has a, an impact, when it becomes foreign-controlled, this has an impact on the supply chain. And 50% of our GDP comes from companies with less than 250 employees. And that, that sector of the market really hasn't, or the sector of our capability, has not received the attention it deserves because that's about our only hope if we're going to really regrow our economy, we've got to start there. I don't see how we're going to win back 
very readily all of the companies that we've so readily sold off. Heather, those are the kind of structural forces, but give us some sense of the cyclical. I mean, we were meant to have, with the depreciation of pound, pounds lost something like a quarter in value against its trading partners over the last two years. We're meant to have some kind of big rebirth for manufacturing, aren't we? Well, that's the hope. Um, and, you know, the pound lost most of its value at the beginning of the financial crisis. And, and you know, it's, it's pretty much remained where it was ever since. And, and, you know, politicians have been very much hoping to see this, this kind of renaissance driven by the cheaper pound. But I mean, I've just the latest trade figures for December came in this morning. And as part of that, the Office for National Statistics has looked back on 2010 as a whole, um, you know, and there was a, a, a large rise in the deficit in 2010 overall, which hardly suggests that this, this so-called export-led recovery is happening. You know, uh, in, in uh, 2009, the deficit was overall was £29.7 billion, pounds, uh, and into 2010 it was £46.2 billion, which is a, a, you know, a huge rise. And yes, we're generating a reasonable surplus in services, which includes things like financial services, but, but uh, you know, manufacturing is, so far at least, simply doesn't seem to be able to keep up. And th- there were some impressive rises. You know, ex- exports of cars, for example, were up 44% on the year, but they, these was, you know, which is, looks like a pretty healthy performance, but these things were swamped by, by rises in imports you know, across other sectors. So it, the picture really so far doesn't look particularly uh, optimistic. That's kind of a really interesting point and up-to-date figures Um, but in terms of kind of cars I can kind of qualify that kind of point Mm. because in motor vehicle manufacturing in terms of the value of sales for every pound that you manufacture in terms of output 50 pence of it is from imported components. Even if manufacturing grows you're really stimulating another economy Mm through through this import content and it's so in kind of intertwined because the supplier chain and the supplier networks have largely been destroyed and when you have an overseas kind of parent the decisions that are made in terms of sourcing often lead to those sourcing decisions being made to the host country rather than but but Sukhdev, I mean, that's the price you pay for being an open economy in the globalised trading system. I, I'm going to interrupt you there. I don't think it's the price you pay. I think it's the price you pay for taking no, giving this no attention whatsoever for a decade and assuming that uh, you have to have this kind of openness because we are the only country in the world that operates in this way. And as a result, we have lost virtually the basis of our industry. And if we go on the way we're going, we will end up with 100% foreign ownership. But why does that matter if we get our goods made in China and that means that they're cheaper for people buying them in Britain? Okay, then let let me uh, uh, try to explain it this way. One of the big mistakes, I think, in looking at uh, uh, the economy is we just talk about GDP and growth of the economy. But the economy has got two elements, if I can make it that simple. One is the internal cycle. You clean my shoes, I cut your hair, you know, the the money goes round. This would be fine if we were a self-sufficient economy, but we're not. We have to suck in materials, we have to suck in oil, we have to suck in, and we suck in a lot of manufactured goods. In doing that, to keep the overall economy balanced, we have to export. Now, for the last decade, we have not been balancing our trade at all. And as a result, we have had to balance the, make the balance of payments by selling assets and by borrowing. Now, this has gone on for 10 or 12 years now, and the reason our industry can't recover is because it isn't there to recover. The value added that we, we contribute is, as, as has been pointed out, is, is only half at best of, of our output. And the decisions, the control is all made somewhere else. 
And, and that puts a totally different spin on it. And you have to recognise that when you start thinking, how are we going to recover? Yeah, but you know the argument that I'm making is one that civil servants have made for decades, which is that you and Sukhdev in his own way are kind of talking about a producer interest when really producers are a small proportion of the economy and we ought to be thinking about consumers too. And since consumers well, get yeah, goods yes, cheaper... But, but the point... No, that, but this is, this is treasury orthodoxy. Yeah, yeah, well, it may be orthodoxy, but it's totally wrong. <laughs> if you look at an economy... I mean, take it down to the individual. You could live high on the hog... Um, if you were borrowing all the time, providing people are willing to lend to you. When they stop lending to you, you start selling the furniture, you know, because you're trying to maintain a standard of living. In the end, you have a, a collapse. In our case, eventually it will be the pound that collapses. The consumer cannot go on spending if the country isn't earning its living. And if you don't face up to that fact, we're going to get this very wrong. Can I reach? Two points uh, that emerge from that. One is I'm always very interested in uh, described as treasury orthodoxy about producer interest, but of course we all produce something. So I've never quite understood this kind of neoliberal notion that producer interests don't matter because we're all producers as well as consumers. The second point is really to ask Sir Alan. Suggested that the this uh, the last decade has seen a you know seen a particular decline for manufacturing, however defined. Is it a, is it a longer term problem? May I understood it's a kind of 30, 40 year problem in manufacturing yeah, I, I, I'll try to avoid the politics of it because in, in trying to raise interest in manufacture and its importance um, I have gone equally to all parties because I don't believe with the state we are in as a nation we've got time for this chit chat between parties you know just chipping at each other it, we've got a really serious issue which is going to take almost national thinking to, to get out of, if we're ever going to get out of. So I don't want to add it. The, the problem started more than 10 years ago. The, the problem probably started back in, uh, in, in Maggie Thatcher's day, but it's got a lot worse in the last decade. And if you look at the numbers from the ONS, the Office of National Statistics, you can see, I mean, any, any businessman looking at those curves would say, something has to be done about our manufacture. What has happened, of course, is we've pumped up internal debt. People have gone out and bought their televisions and their cars and, and everything else. And we have no manufacturing base that has grown to, to cope with that. We don't cope with it either by exporting or by internal supply. Let me give you one statistic to indicate the importance of manufacture. Regardless of all the numbers today, taking the 2008 figures, which are the latest I've got here, if we were to increase manufacture output by 10% our exports, and if we were to reduce the imports by 10%, then we would make a bigger contribution to our balance of payments than all of financial services and insurance put together. Greg, I want to ask you a question. You represent a constituency on the edge of Glasgow, which is obviously part of Britain's illustrious industrial heritage. What's the kind of economic story that you've been, we've been hearing so far this morning? What does that look like on the ground? Yes, it's very interesting that I was thinking about what the, the major employers in, in my constituency are and probably in t the private sector, the biggest employer is Iron Brew. Iron Brew is headquartered and produced in Cumbernauld and I was recently on the factory floor and of course I think it has some relevance because in terms of production it's entirely capital intensive and I think Iron Brew employs 400 people roughly on the Cumbernauld HQ and production site but most of them are in sales and marketing and, um, you know, distribution. Very rather, few of uh, them in girders. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> made in Cumbernauld from girders, Aditya. But if we say production, distribution accent, and exchange, most of, almost all the jobs are in distribution and 
exchange. Um, and another employer is Macintosh. If we're talking about British premium brands, Macintosh coats are made in Cumbernauld. It's a local man, I understand, who's the you know who's the, the driving force behind this. And they've opened a new store in, in uh, the Mayfair, I believe, in London. And they're a very successful brand. But again, the number of jobs involved in that is not a huge amount, which feeds into a broader point about whether niche markets can build the capacity which you need to try and you know build back up British manufacturing. And what is it What's the kind of human dimension? What, what do people do for work now if they don't have the old big industrial employers to, to work for? Well, we know that the, the public sector is large uh, to the extent that people have heard of Cumbernauld. It may be because of the tax office. It's got a very large tax office there. And um, people uh, working at Edinburgh and Glasgow in financial services, in Edinburgh in particular, but also in Glasgow. I'd say it's probably representative of, of, the, well, of those parts of the country that aren't the southeast. So there's financial services to some degree, there's a, a significant public sector and then small private employers of various kinds involved in distribution, logistics, but not so much in production. I say Iron Brew is a kind of shining light in that way, but that's a, na- that's a national Scottish treasure. Sukdev, if we want this industrial renaissance that David Cameron, Peter Manson, pretty much everyone has been talking about, if we want this actually to happen, what kind of policies do we need? Um, First of all, shift from rebalancing to rebuilding. Um, <laughs> the assumption is the kind of you know a bit of left and a bit of right is all. It's all going to be okay. Um, it requires kind of interventions. Um, some of the kind of policies we've suggested in the Crest report include kind of you know topping and tailing the tax regime. So, for example, have kind of you know a step like um, cuts in corporate tax for any increase in value added above three percent offer national insurance holidays for structured in-house apprenticeship schemes. Um, Small things that you can use where tax cuts and reductions in corporate tax have to be earned rather than just given away. So you want tax breaks for good manufacturers who employ people, is that roughly right? To do socially useful things like adding to output. The problem in Britain is a capacity problem where every pound, um, and this comes back to an earlier point, there is demand for manufacturing. Um, For every pound that's spent, Britain can only service 81 pence of it. Um, So there is an output gap. Um, How do we bridge that gap? Well, activities that have gone to China are unlikely to come back. Uh, But what you can do is to kind of change the incentives privilege manufacturing, give it corporate tax breaks, significant corporate tax breaks, um, so it adds to capacity. If it adds to capacity, adds to output more than 3%, it will add, it will add extra employment. That extra employment will more than compensate for the cut in corporate tax. Use the tax regime for socially useful purposes. Sir Alan, would you add anything to that? Yes, very much. First of all, I am totally supported of, uh, supportive of those remarks. The, the ERA Foundation in 2007 did a report which took a look at uh, manufacture because it was concerned about manufacturing and its future. And we came to the conclusion that um, uh, the best ana- analogy was a greenhouse. You know, if you have a greenhouse and some of the plants wither, you look at the plants. If you have a greenhouse and all of the plants aren't doing too well, you look at the greenhouse. Mm-hmm. So we started looking at all the parameters that could affect manufacture, both investment and operations. We ended up with a list of 31 parameters. 
And our recommendation to government at the time, this was pre the election, so we did it to all the uh, parties at the time, was take a look at this list of 31. You cannot just freely assign the, the optimum value to each of them from the manufacturing point of view, but you can often tilt them. And if you're changing something, have a look at this list and make sure you're not undermining the very thing that you need to regrow. And amongst those, uh, amongst that list was tax. The tax can produce benefits far greater than the cost because everybody hates paying tax and everybody will take investment decisions as well as operational divisions based on tax. So tax is certainly a key one. There are 30 others that you can uh, uh, take a look at. And if you were to try to optimize those, you would create a fertile ground environment for manufacture. You don't need to tell people what to manufacture. Leave it to them. Heather, we hear a lot from the coalition about their growth strategy, which they're going to tell us more about in the run-up to the budget on March 23rd. Um, how far does what Sukhdev and Sir Alan said about how we could uh, encourage manufacturing, how far do you think that's reflected in their plans? I don't think it's very clearly reflected at all. I mean, one problem seems to be that that all the business groups you talk to say that there is there is disarray within government about this. You know, there, the, a manufacturing paper was apparently drafted, signed off, showed around to all the interest groups late last year um, and pulled back from being published at the last minute. Who knows what that was about, internal wrangling or whatever else, but it doesn't exactly inspire confidence. And, I mean, Vince Cable today is launching a white paper on trade, which he says is, is going to help small companies access crucial markets in the emerging world. But when you actually ask what the content of that is, well, you know, making the export credit guarantee department a a little bit more accessible for small firms, you know, possibly bits of funding here or there. But none of this feels very radical. And that's my problem when you talk to ministers is that some of what Sir Alan's talking about is a a radical rethink. And what Sukhdev's talking about is rebuilding. And I I just don't get the sense that that's what they've got in mind. When they talk about rebalancing. Well, that's it. it I mean, Sukhdev's right that they're thinking about a tweak here and a tweak there. And actually, when you look at the figures, what's needed is something much more radical than that. And I think the Lib Dems, who might be quite interventionist at heart on some of these things, bang up against the Tories, whose, whose approach is, is very much laissez-faire. And when you, you know, when you hear ministers talking about this, you still get the slight sense that they have this very old fashioned idea of what we need to do is just get out of the way, you know, and, and business will, will do this itself. Well, I, I mean, I think as we've heard today, I, I don't think that's right. Greg, you can have a free hit at the opposition here. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask about, because I, I think to understand the, 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 you know, the kind of prescription, we need to have a diagnosis which looks at how this originated, this problem. And if the assumption is it's originated in politics, then it'd be interesting to find out from you know, experts how we got to this position, because then I think the, you know, the solution emerges out of a diagnosis of the problem. And if I could just put in my tuppence worth, the, the Lib Dems were mentioning, you're certainly right about somebody like Vince Cable, but I do think we're trying to understand the political culture in which this manufacturing decline, if we call it that, has taken place. Then the Lib Dems are a good place to, part, to start, because it turns out that actually there's a wing of the Lib Dems that is much more neoliberal than we realised. <laughs> and I make that as a not as a partisan point, but if we're trying to work out how we got into this situation you know David Laws is a classic example but there's clearly a wing that we didn't realise was there and I'd just like to ask Sir Alan and, and uh, Sukhdev how did we get to this point do they think politics is the reason we got here I, th- I think political decisions over the years I think one of the most uh, damaging uh, uh, things has been the attitude which says something along the following lines that we are in a post-industrial society 
and the future lies with financial services. Now, that's been a mantra that we've heard uh, for many years. And if you were a youngster coming out of a, a bright youngster coming out of a university and that was what was being said generally about the place, you wouldn't think of going into industry for your future. You would assume that that isn't the direction. If you look at all the business schools which reflect this, most of them train for financial services. They don't train for industry. And I think that the first requirement from our 31 parameters was that government needed a long-term commitment to manufacturing and to keep saying it and to keep doing everything in their power to make it very clear. We haven't had that for 30 or 40 years. First of all, we need to dump the policy of something will turn up. Um, we've had 30 years of it. And, um, you know, um, hopefully kind of there's some kind of North Sea oil bubble or something that we haven't tapped in that will kind of conceal the weakness of the British economy. Um, the thing that the, the problem is, I think, long-standing, but particularly um, the devastation that was caused after the 80 recession. 25% um, of British manufacturing output was cut at that point. British manufacturing has never recovered from that point. But in terms of percentage terms, manufacturing fell just as quickly under new labour as it did under Margaret Thatcher. But um, there's another kind of concealing kind of point that how we've covered this. We've covered it because we've used household equity withdrawal to keep the show going. It's over now. OK, so those two seem to me to be largely political explanations of what went wrong. Um, I'm going to contrast that with John Ross from Jiao Tong University in Shanghai, who's got a different perspective. Well, I think you can learn from China, also from South Korea and Japan during its rapid growth. Two fundamental things required for proper industrial development. Firstly is big public investment in infrastructure. That means government spending. Government spending. Government spending in transport also, incidentally, government spending in housing in order to prevent boom-bust cycles in the, in the housing sector. Germany, for example, spends much on housing. And secondly, low interest rates. And in order to have low interest rates, you've got to subordinate the banks to the interest of policy, whereas Britain has historically pursued a high interest rate policy. I mean, if you look at China today, the real interest rates are negative. Um, they were negative for considerable periods in Japan. It was organised peculiarly via the postal banking system, but nevertheless the net result of which is you had negative interest rates for savers and negative interest rates for um, people borrowing money. China has basically the same situation today. Also, if you look at India, it's not an accident that the two countries in the world with the most rapidly growing economies, major economies, China and India, both have state-dominated, or in the case of China, state-owned banking systems because that ensures the subordination of the bank banks to industry, whereas in Britain we've got the subordination of industry to the banks and have had for the last 150 years. So, Lev, there you go. You see, you're talking about fiddling with the tax regime and our man from Shanghai is talking about huge investment by government in the economy and nationalisation of the entire banking system. Our position, the Crest position, is um, that we should actually downsize the finance sector. Um, be pleasant to bankers. Tell them to kind of lend a little bit more to business. Yeah, that's it's not something gonna, that no politicians ad advocate, though, no, whether uh, Labour or um, Conservative. Um, in the realms of the possible, I don't recall kind of new Labour actually saying that we're going to downsize the, 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 the financial system either. Um, but in terms of kind of manufacturing, there is already quite a lot of state intervention in manufacturing. If you consider um, in terms of R&D in pharmaceuticals or defence contracting. Um, yeah, but you, we're not talking about building dams and bridges, which is what John 
Rossi. Can, can I add that w- w- I do think, I mean, that's why I was asking about what people thought about the, the long term position, because we are in the grip in Britain in a view of the world, an ideology which assumes that profit. Um, made is profit made by individuals and by businesses with no input from the public sector or the economy more, more widely. I was struck by the, 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 the contributor they are talking about infrastructure because when you sit in the House of Commons you often hear MPs uh, Conservative MPs in particular talking about enterprise as if there's no relationship between enterprise and public infrastructure. And I think there's a broader point, which is that we we are in a we do have a view of the world in this country, which I think is antithetical to manufacturing and sees um, if manufacturing means state intervention, as that contributor from Shanghai suggested, that it depends on public investment. We tend not to view the world in that way, certainly since uh, neoliberalism took root. So, Alan, let me just pick up on that with you. I mean, what um, Greg's sort of alluding to there is a kind of a different way of thinking about an economic model, completely different from the one that we've got here, um, where in China um, all private sector interests are subordinate to the state. You, that presumably is not something you'd go along with. I think we have to start from where we are rather than where China was, and you can't absolutely model Chinese success, if you like, though, in China's got its problems coming up now with inflation and having to raise its interest rates and so on and so forth. So they start from a different point. We've got to start from where we are, but realise the severity of the situation. I, I find in the UK that we still haven't got a, away from this idea. Uh, we're almost, you know, we're the empire and we're very rich and we can afford to be very generous to everybody else because we're very rich. And we go on with this illusion because we never talk about this business of balancing our books. We only talk about the internal economy, the, uh, the, the growth of GDP, but you can grow GDP by borrowing. And that's what we've been doing. Somebody has got to explain to this nation that we're not rich anymore. We are a small nation on the edge of Europe, and we better start looking to the future because we certainly aren't going to be able to survive as we're going on at the moment. Now, if that means more in the end, more government intervention, so be it. But I think they could start by looking down our list of parameters and seeing what they can do about each one and see to what degree they can nudge, if you like, in 30 different directions, but nudge the economy towards you know, a manufacturing base rather than towards a, a, a financial services base. Sukhdev, final question to you. Is a nudge enough? A nudge is not enough, but better than nothing. Um, if not now, when? Can I just say that I think that those, those 30 prescriptions, 31, depend on a, an understanding from the outset that public and private sectors are entwined. Mm. That has to be the starting point or, or there will be no pressure for those 31 prescriptions to be put into action. That's what we should learn from the banking crisis, isn't it? That, that you know, banks, banks was an, an independent, thriving private sector and then all of a sudden when it all goes horribly wrong, you realise it's not separate from the state because the state has no choice but to step in. No man is an island and neither is any enterprise. I, I agree with uh, Greg's point, but would make the point that we still have to be realistic about what we can afford. And it's no good going on pretending that we can grow this internal um, service uh, uh, activity and not pay for it by exports and remember that manufacturing is only 12% of that GDP but it provides 50% of our exports 
and services are, uh, or manufacturing is six times more effective than services in making exports. You don't get too many, you don't get too much exports out of the tax office. You know, even though it employs a lot of people, you've got to have a tax office, and you've got to, but you've got to get these things in the right balance. And we can only afford what we can afford, and, and we shouldn't be ridiculous about saying we we have to have all these services because we've always had them. We've got to cut our cloth according to our, you know, uh, our. Uh, or cut our coat according to our cloth, and, and I think that's an attitude which is still lacking. The realisation that it isn't so complicated, we have to earn our living. Well, that's it for this week. Leave your thoughts in the programme on our blog and find plenty more on this subject at guardian.co.uk forward slash manufacturing. My thanks to Sir Alan Raj, Sukhdev Johal, Greg McClarmont and Heather Stewart. The producer was Phil Maynard, I'm Edith Chakraborty. Thanks for listening. <laughs>